so the next two Sundays, we're going to be looking at uh, who we are as a people, as a church, specifically as Weston Memorial. Uh, and we have two Sundays before Lent starts. That's the 40 days leading up to Easter. So we figured it would be a good opportunity to, I don't want to call it State of the Union Address. That's sort of cheesy, but um, sort of just define more of who we are as a church and, and kind of why, we're, why are we here and to say that. And, and we're going to do that through the lens of what Jesus said are the two greatest commandments. And we'll talk about that, but love God and love your neighbor as yourself and how that can be the archetype or the standard by which um, this church should and does, even more so, I hope, uh, operate. Uh, so we're looking at love God, love neighbor. So this crosses over nicely with Valentine's Day coming up and all those sorts of things. So it's good to look at, like, what is this church about, you know? Um, the first time I ever pulled up to this church, uh, I, never, I never knew it was here when I uh, worked at Clemens Methodist for so long. And when I rolled up, I was like, man, this place is pretty impressive. And then someone said, yeah, it's called the Little Vatican. I'm like, okay, is there like a small pope somewhere? Is, with a small hat around somewhere in the papal office or something? Um, and you know, it has a very austere, beautiful look. I mean, it's a unique church. I've never seen anything like it before. It's kind of one of a kind. And I see that as a strength. You know, and so like when COVID kicked in and we decided to try to be on television and the streaming and all of that, I, we said, you know what? People need to see, like even if you're not a church going person, like you see that sanctuary or whatever, you go, man, where is that, right? It's a strength, it's a great tool. But obviously a church is more than just a building. The church is about the people. So although the exterior looks fantastic and very impressive, we always tell people, you should come inside and meet the people because they're actually far, far greater than uh, you think. Uh, uh, and it gives, does my heart good. So many people have told me they visited and things like that, and they've said, uh, man, I felt greeted right away. I had people shake my hand, and that's what you want to hear, right? Um, and if you're like terribly introverted, and I'm sorry, but we are going to try and shake your hand and tell you good morning. Um, because if we didn't, you would be even more upset. So, um, so it, we're going to look at this a lot, but how love is the hallmark for any Christian church, right? Like Jesus said, my, the world will know that you are my followers by how you love each other, right? That's how they know. Even the book of Acts, when the church was exploding in the Middle East and um, the outside pagan world looked, in, and it's, I forgot what chapter and verse it is in Acts, but they, that, that they commented, look how well they love each other. It stood out in a world that was vicious and eye for an eye and brutal in the way the church cared for each other. It, you couldn't help but notice. It just stood out, right? So when Jesus says salt and light, that's what he's talking about. So people may have stereotypes, they may have assumptions about this church, but I encourage everyone to come inside and experience it for yourself and you'll find that maybe those false stereotypes might come crumbling down uh, very quickly. Uh, when reality meets your, your stereotype. That's typically how it works. So I'm gonna give you two mental images for the next two weeks I want you to think about. Um, that to me, I'm, I'm a child of the 80s, so uh, graphics and images, it's just how we think, right? Um, you know, I was raised watching Price is Right with my mom, 1986 or whatever. Um, and I have reached the age where getting an appliance, I see that now as, a, as an exciting thing. Uh, when I was a child, I'm like, this is lame. They're getting a toaster? <laughs> Give them an Atari 2600, man. An Apple IIe. 
Um, <laughs> that's a really old joke there. But two images here. The first is an oak tree or tree that's just deeply rooted. And when I think about loving God, I think about you're being deeply rooted in something bigger than yourself. And that, that there's a rootedness, like for example, um, Jesus is the living word. So he wasn't just deeply rooted, he is the word, right? But he was always flexible above ground in grace to the world around him. And yet, deeply, I mean, he's not just rooted, he is the word, but that's our calling as well. That's how I view loving God, is by being rooted in who he is, and yet flexible in grace to the world around me. So I want you to picture that uh, image in your, in your mind that it is because of your rootedness, and we'll talk about ways you can do the rootedness thing, but it's because of your rootedness in God and his word that you are able to offer anything to the world around you. If we sacrifice the rootedness, the authority of God's word, walking in the spirit, if we put those things aside, we don't have much to offer to the world around us except sentimentality or emotionalism. Um, so the rootedness is important. And then secondly is a picture of a, a towel and a basin of, of famously Jesus washing the feet of his disciples at the Last Supper the night before he's crucified. And uh, this, this picture of a servant. The, I, we're gonna read this whole passage, but when I think about loving neighbor, I, you have to go back to this, right? Because again, here's the living word, come down incarnate in flesh, lived among sinners, he who had no sin, perfect in all of his ways. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. I will never get my mind around the immensity and the beauty of that, right? He laid aside his majesty as the Son of God and came in service to the world. Now, he never laid aside his authority, though, right? He always is the living word. He, his, he had complete authority in this teaching and who he is. And yet... The night before he's crucified, he gets down, he takes off his outer garment, he takes a towel and a basin, and he washes all of their feet. And we're gonna read a pretty lengthy passage, but I like to do it in context. So this is John chapter 13, towel and basin. Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them, that's important, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put it in the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Good old Simon Peter, he always asks the obvious question. Jesus answered, you do not know now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, do not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, one who is bathed does not need to wash except for the feet, but is entirely clean. But you are clean, though, not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. After he had washed their feet, he had put on his robe and returned to the table. He said to them, do you know what I've done to you? 
You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Don't worry, we're not doing a foot washing today. (laughs) But he's making a good point here for us today. For I've set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So the Holy One, Jesus, washes the feet of these men. Clearly, their feet would have been disgusting. They wore sandals. But more than that, Jesus washes Judas's feet. He doesn't skip over Judas. He didn't affirm the things that Judas was going to do. He didn't say it was going to be fine, but he served him and loved him to the end, as John said. Both of these illustrations, oak tree, towel, and basin, they serve as archetypes, as standards, as guides for us as a church because they put Jesus, his example, as the center of who we're supposed to follow. Because if you leave Jesus out of your mission statement, you're not much different than any secular organization. Like, a church can be all about social justice, and that's great, but if you leave Jesus out of it, then what's the point? A church can be all about evangelism, or worship, or outreach, or missions, but you can forget your first love. A church can be all about Jesus with your lips, but your heart can be far from him. So if you don't have a Christ focus focus when you talk about this sort of thing, you're kind of missing the point. Because ultimately, Christians, were supposed to follow him, right? You're supposed to follow how he did it. Not how someone tells you it's supposed to be done. You're supposed to read the word and see how he did it and do your best with God's strength within you to follow him faithfully. And so when we take our eyes off his example, we lose our way, obviously. Like, for example, in the Bible, the scope of the Bible all points toward him. But if you don't focus on that, you'll miss it. Like, think about this. In the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, he's revealed. In the Acts, he's preached. In the Epistles, he's explained. In the Revelation, he's expected. He's all over it. And the Bible begins and ends with a wedding. Go back and read it. You'll see what I mean. The spotlight is always on him. So that's why it's important to keep him as the focus when we talk about who we are and how we're supposed to love the world and love God and love each other. And in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus famously has a discourse with some leaders and they ask him which commandment is the greatest. They just want to get down to the basics. Um, I think they were trying to trap him. Of course, he always has the right answer. And Jesus famously says, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we'll look at this again, but that's essentially one commandment. Don't think of it as two. You can't have one without the other. You can't be like, well, I love God, but I really hate your guts, you know? (laughs) It doesn't work that way. Um, One fuels the other. So Matthew 22, you can bring it back up. He says this, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Now they're thinking he's gonna say something different and they're gonna say he's a heretic and try and get him killed. 
He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, they're essentially the same thing. They all feel this, this one commandment. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So a picture a closet hanger in your mind. On those two, those two things, love God, love neighbor, all the other law and the prophets hang off the bottom. It's all hanging on those two things. So like the Ten Commandments, the prophets, the law of the Old Testament, he's not saying that stuff's nullified and ignored and gone and worthless. No, quite the contrary. It's all fueled by love. Love, all those things should hang off of holy love. love. So Jesus said that he'd not come to abolish the law or nullify the law. He came to fulfill the law perfectly, and he did, and he has, and he is. He's the perfect fulfillment of it. And I've heard this so many times over the years, and it drives me crazy. I've heard preachers seem to suggest that Jesus somehow nullified the Ten Commandments by just saying, love God, love your neighbor. Let's, let's review the Ten Commandments, shall we? Check them out. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor thy father and mother. Thou shalt not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. So if you, if you, if you kill someone, you're not loving your neighbor, are you? No. If you're coveting someone else's stuff, are you loving your neighbor? No. If you worship an idol, whatever it might be, are you loving God? No, you're loving an idol. All of these commandments and more are contained in those two, right? It doesn't nullify them. It just, he's just saying love should be what motivates the fulfillment of all of those things. When you honor your parents, you're loving God. So Methodism when we talk about loving God, I want to get into a little bit about Methodism, about loving God and loving neighbor as yourself. So many people have asked over the years, what does Methodism even believe? Like, what's, what does that even stand for? Because it sounds weird, like Methodism. But what it means is that we have a method for loving God. We have a method of how we live for God in this world, an order to it, right, a framework. So that's nice, right? It feels good, it should, because you need a guide, we need help to understand that. So that's really what, Meth Methodism is just plain scriptural Christianity. That's all it is. And some people over the years will go, well I go to the Baptist church, or I go to the Presbyterian church, you know what I tell them? We're all on the same team. We're all on the same team. We're all going to the same place, I hope, right? We have different facets, things we focus on, but we're on the same team. We should be moving in the same direction. Now as Methodists, we are, we are methodical and have methods in order to love God more fully and to love our neighbors more fully. And I've heard this quote attributed to John Wesley many, many times, and he never actually said this. Do good, do no harm, stay in love with God. You heard this before? He never actually said that phrase. It's taken out of context. But it's really good. Do good, do no harm, Stay in love with God. But here's what happens on the internet. Because you see a meme, 
you think it's true. Like Abraham Lincoln said, don't believe everything you read on the internet just because there's a picture with a quote next to it. Be excellent to each other and party on, dudes. Abraham Lincoln. Just because there's a meme for it doesn't mean he actually said it, right? And here's what John Wesley actually said. I don't like doing block quotes and sermons a whole lot, so I'm just going to read a little bit to you. But it's really good stuff. If you read Wesley's sermons, it is just Bible. I mean, he is just full of Scripture. And so he talks about do good, do no harm, stay in love with God. These are really good ways you stay in love with God. He says, first, by doing no harm, you avoid evil in every kind. So sometimes doing good is simply not doing bad. Secondly, by doing good, be kind and merciful as you have the opportunity. Do good of every possible sort, as far as it is possible to all men. To the ability giveth, give food to the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting those that are sick or in prison, running with patience the race that is set before you, denying yourself, taking up your cross daily, submitting to bear the reproach of Christ, to be as the filth and offscouring of the world. He's saying be willing to be on the margins. Be willing to not get credit. Be willing if you say you love your neighbor, but then be willing to do it without getting any recompense. Be willing to serve, but not be served. Then thirdly, he gives practical ways we stay in love with God, which is what we're focusing on today. Thirdly, he says, by attending to the ordinances of God, the public worship of God, the ministry of the word, either read or expounded, the supper of the Lord, family and private prayer, searching the scriptures, fasting, or abstinence. So as Methodists, this is just the general way we are called to love God. And here's some practical, methodical ways to accomplish that. So while we're called to love God, this church is called to love God as all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're also a family, right? Families have traditions. As they say, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. Church is a little different. You can choose your family here, actually. And churches are covenant people. We are a covenant people. A covenant is not a contract. Covenants are things that are never broken. And on God's end, never been broken. Our end, we tend to break covenants, right? Contracts can be nullified. Covenants don't. So when Jesus said, I've come, and this is my blood of the new covenant, it's everlasting that what he has done for you and me, and we'll get to that in a moment, but we are a covenant people, we're a family, and families help each other, right? Good families do. My wife was telling me about upstairs with the children, there's a, a newer uh, church member couple named Jenny and Adam, and they regularly help play with the kids upstairs and help with children's ministry, and she was like, I could not do it with people, without people like that. You know, in the past um, two years, this church has added, I think, about 250 uh, new church members to Wesley Memorial. That's an astounding number. And it's because God is building up a family of God in this place. That's not just for this generation, but for the next generation. He's building up this church to be a place where people will come and be resourced and equipped and then sent out. That's why this church is experiencing what we're having right now in a great way, because we're called to serve. 
we're called to be servants to the church at large around us. That's gonna be our calling, friends. So when Gary Chapman came here, or the School of Methodism is coming up next weekend, all that stuff is not by accident. It's because God has called us to serve. He's called us to serve other people in the community around us. So that's why I wanted you to have that towel and basin mentality as well, and we'll get into that next week, but you know, families help each other, they serve each other. Love is faith and action. Love is not an emotion. Love is an ability, it is a choice we make. You can never be guaranteed they will return the love. And so many young people misunderstand love today. You think that love is lust. You think that love is getting what you want while you can get it. That's not love. You think that, you think that, that love is merely about your circumstance. That's not love. Love can be hard work. Love can be, but it's a good hard work. Families love each other, even when you might not feel loving, right? That stuff comes and goes. Feelings are up and down. But love is patient. Love is kind. Love is long-suffering. Love keeps no record of wrongs. So when we talk about love, let's make sure we have the right definition in mind. Let's think about agape love, the Greek word for family love, self-sacrificing love. That's what we're talking about. So when we say we love each other, we're a family, we're a covenant people, that we are a people that don't just look to the past of our traditions as Methodists, but that we are looking to the future of what God is going to accomplish in this community, and he is accomplishing it right now in our midst, that we are part of a work of God that we have even yet to reach the crest of, and that he is calling us to serve the world around us So as Methodists, we believe that we're a covenant people, we're a family, we have a method for loving God that can help us and give us a a guide in that way. We also are a people who are a family, we're a covenant, but we're also a people seeking transformation and not affirmation, right? We're a people seeking transformation and not affirmation. So many people seem to think that God's love for me or you is all about affirming who we are today. And I just disagree with that. God is always seeking to transform people's lives, to make them more into his image as it's supposed to be in the beginning before the fall. Jesus always offered transformational grace to everyone, but never was it affirmational. Amen? Read the scriptures. It's always transformational. As you're deeply rooted, you're flexible in grace to the world around us. Jesus never affirms me in my sin, and I'm so glad he doesn't, because I don't want a God just like me. That's not God, that's me. And that doesn't do me any good. So Jesus offers transformational grace to all men and women. So when we prepare to come before the Lord's table today, I'm gonna add something new today where we're gonna look at the Apostles' Creed and we're gonna read it together. And when you stand and you read a creed in a church or um, you walk up and eat some bread and some juice, you might not feel anything. There's, There's corporate transformation, congregational. There's also personal transformation. But it's, again, we don't love God by feeling. You love God by faith. 
So when you stand up and you say a creed or you come forward at communion, come by faith, come with open hands by faith to receive what God wants to pour into you. It's because when you, when you do these things and you put yourself in those ways, as John Wesley would say, are means of grace or the methods by which we love God and neighbor better. When you choose to do that, here's what you're doing. Picture yourself as a sailboat and you have a sail because you're a sailboat, and <laughs> amen, let's go home, no. You have a sail. What you're doing is you're orienting the sail of your life toward the Spirit of God. And you're orienting, you're, you're positioning yourself in that stream of his grace. Now God is everywhere all the time. He's omnipotent, he's all powerful, he's all everything. But there are methods or means by which he communicates himself the most clearly. And so when we do a creed or we take communion or we do fasting or we do prayers of family where we're with our children or you read the scriptures, what you're doing is you're turning the sail of your life toward his spirit so that he can propel you forward in the direction he desires for you to go. And it's that mysterious interplay of your choice in God's will. But it's always love. Love. 